Welcome to Private Market Talks, a Proskauer podcast. I'm your host, Peter Antarshik. On today's episode, I speak with Jason Schumann. Jason is a general partner at Primary VC, a New York-based venture capital firm. Jason leads new investments across built world, fintech, and marketplaces, including such companies as Latch, Dandy, and Perry Health. He has been featured by Forbes on their 30 Under 30 venture capital list and by Venture Capital Journal as one of their under 40 rising stars. During our conversation, we discuss his investment strategy, his advice for founders, and where he sees investment opportunities. We also talk about challenges facing venture capitalists today, and he gives us an insider's take on what it was like when he had to deal with the fallout of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. You'll find a transcript of this episode at privatemarkettalks.com, as well as links to other useful information. And please don't forget to subscribe and click like after listening. And now, without further delay, my conversation with Jason Schumann. Welcome, Jason, to Private Market Talks. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to spend time talking about venture capital and the world of venture capital in today's environment. To get started, if you could just tell us a little bit about your background, what drew you to venture capital, and a little bit about Primary VC. I'm from Boston originally. Grew up in a family of entrepreneurs and small business owners, you know, and was inspired deeply by, you know, people like my uncle who connected us, my father, aunts and uncles, and then also my mom, actually, who's a therapist. I think the emotional intelligence that I got from her and the, the deep empathy of people was really inspiring. And and I'm sure therapy goes a lot into VC investing Oh my gosh, as well. we could go very deep into that, especially around board meetings and outside of board meetings. But um, yeah, you know, I just fell in love with startups when I was a kid. In middle school, I was like writing business plans. High school, I figured out that, you know, I wasn't exactly the best student, but business came pretty naturally to me and that I could graduate early if I went out and got an internship at a startup. And so I got to work at a uh, company, learned a lot there and just fell in love with it all. And I ended up launching a direct-to-consumer footwear company back in 2011. I say that was when, you know, uh, it wasn't cool to be starting companies right. and when Shopify was a pretty brutal platform, no offense, Toby, but it was great market timing in 2011. Facebook CACs were super cheap. I think my market timing in general was great because it was like the early innings, though, of, of direct-to-consumer footwear yeah. and direct-to-consumer businesses in general. Probably a mediocre market, as we can all say these days, based off of the stock performance of a lot of the DEC brands. And then my execution was even worse. So... If you can't execute, <laughs> I say go invest. And so while I was living in Boston and, and really shutting down my company, I ended up driving for Uber at night. And during the day, there wasn't that many seed funds or early stage funds in Boston at the time. And so I went out and I started sourcing deals and eventually got an offer to move to here to New York City, where we're recording, went over to Corage Ventures. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a single LP real estate family office. I had an incredible opportunity to work with uh, Ryan Friedman and David Goldberg over there. Ended up investing in prop tech, fintech, marketplaces. And then after a couple of years, I met the founder of Gerson Lehrman Group and GLG. He ended up asking me to launch his family office. I worked with him for a number of years, including helping really restructure and, and spin out a portfolio company that he had a good amount of capital in. Spent about a year working on that software business. And then after the whole thing was cleaned up, I went back into the family office and I, I really had a realization, which was, I am incredibly passionate about partnering with founders at the earliest stages, and I want to get back to it full time. And lucky enough, I got a phone call one day by the founder of a company called Latch, and he said, mm -hmm. you should go meet with Ben and Brad, who are the two co-founders of Primary. I sat down with them one day, and you know, one thing led to another, and I would say that uh, we met for 
three hours that first day. And the reason why was because our philosophy around seed investing was completely aligned, which is very different from most other folks in the seed investing world. It really has to do with earning the right to work with the best founders. And mm -hmm. we do it by running a concentrated portfolio, only a few investments a year per partner. We invest in New York only. We're spending more money than any other seed firm in the country, maybe the world, when it comes to portfolio impact resources to go in and work super closely with the founders. And then we're also incubating businesses here in New York City, combining some of the best operators in the world with ideas and markets that we genuinely believe in. And it's led to world-class results, You know, two top 5% funds globally, about 25% of our companies are unicorns now that we backed at seed, and about 93% of the companies have raised Series A. So I wanna get into how you've accomplished that in a little bit, but before I do, can you tell me a little bit about primary VC's industry or sector focus? Yes, yeah, so, you know, the world of venture capital is institutionalized in a way that it had not been about eight years ago when I first got into the industry. And when you look across all asset classes, the more institutionalized they get, the more specialized they get. Mm -hmm. And so primary is no different. We believe that we need to bring a prepared mind into meetings, and that means you need to specialize. We believe that by doing so, we can add more value to founders than anyone else in the market, and that we can make decisions faster, which is incredibly important as we learned over the last few years. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, so we're, we're kind of broken up into different teams now. So we have a specialist when it comes to developer ops and infrastructure. We have somebody else who's focused on healthcare. We have another person who's focused on fintech. And then we have a team that's focused on really enterprise software. And although I spent the last few years really focused on the consumer world, uh, I've been digging my teeth much more into the built world, technology, productivity tools, SMB tech, stuff with similar go-to-markets, uh, go-to-market strategies, and things that I am more familiar with. Is the focus primarily early stage, pre-seed, seed funding? Exclusively pre-seed and seed. You know, I think when you come into our office, you quickly realize that everybody on our team are builders and not backers, and we don't right. love spreadsheets. And so pre-seed and seed is for us. So can you walk us through sort of your investment process from start to finish? Maybe you can even give an example of how you source a deal, how you might structure it, your conversations that you'll have with the founders, what works in those conversations. Just walk us through the, the process. So the process depends really on how the deal ends up coming in. There are a few core sources of deal flow ultimately. One of those sources is our own network. You know, portfolio company founders are incredible people for sources of deal flow because A, they've had a great relationship with us, B, we trust them, and C, if they've been successful, people go to them for advice. So they become unbelievable sources of deal flow. The second one's gonna be deal nodes. And so in any sector where you have a specialization, you're gonna go, wanna go out and make a relationship with the 10 most well-connected people in that sector. Because when people go out to raise money, they end up reaching out to people who are experts and well-networked to go figure out who they should talk to right. or who they should sell to. And then the last one, and this is pretty unique for a seed fund, we use a lot of data sources to generate an outbound list. With that said, we then take a you know first meeting. So before you go there, what yeah. does that mean? I mean, walk through what that that involves. So we're using a variety of signals from the market. So an example would be, let's say somebody is working at Stripe in product, and all of a sudden their LinkedIn gets updated and their career there ends. That sets off a trigger in our system. Oh, interesting. We can then go send them an email and say, 
hey, John, I saw that you're working on a new venture or that you recently left Stripe, would love to learn about what you're doing next or what you're working on. And that then typically leads to an intro call. The challenge is that when you're sending out as many emails as we're sending out, you really do need to prioritize like the cream of the crop yep. and then figure out other ways to triage the remaining, which usually results in us asking them to send us a deck or mm -hmm. you know a blurb about the company because you know our time's limited, but founder's time is limited as well. Right. We don't want to waste anyone's time in that process. Right, right, right. And so then what would be the next step once you've made that initial contact? Either a principal on our team or a partner on our team or both will meet with the founder and do an intro meeting. And in that meeting, we're learning a lot about the founder, their background, their experiences, both personally and professionally, how they got to where they are today. And then we're really trying to figure out what pain point are they solving? You know, is there a problem that is incredibly severe in the industry? How did they learn that? How did they earn the insight there? And what is really the why now? Because, you know, there's plenty of tech companies out there, but like, why is there a reason to exist today versus five years ago? And mm -hmm. an example of that would be, you know, Uber would have been incredibly hard to start when the iPhone didn't exist because you didn't have location of everybody. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, when you have these technolo technology advances, it makes it significantly easier. So we go and we have that conversation. We start understanding the product how they want to go to market. But more specifically, if I were to dumb down and simplify like how we think about startups internally, a founder has an overarching hypothesis in the way that they like want to go to market and they want to think about things. And then they have a series of sub theses. And within those, they essentially get money from us to test those and prove certain things out. And once they prove a certain thing out, they earn the right to then get to the next round of financing to then test the next set of sub sub theses, sub hypotheses, however you want to think about it. And for us, you know, when we get to a founder who understands the tactical levers of their business and how to go to market and how to solve the problem, and we genuinely genuinely believe that they can sell stock, yeah. people, and their product. That's when all the stars align and, you know, we'll go back to them with additional questions after the meeting. We'll send them a pitch deck about ourselves. Yep. We'll invite them in for a partner meeting pitch. We'll have done a ton of due diligence, by the way, like we're, we are back channeling founders left and right. I'm curious as to, you know, how you discern that person that brings the whatever the, you know, the qualities that you're looking for to the table. How do you how do you make that evaluation? Well, I mean, my mom was a therapist, so, you know, I think it makes it easy to look right into their soul. Um, no, the, re the reality is everyone has a type of founder that they tend to gravitate towards. And these relationships, by the way, last when they're good mm -hmm. 10 plus years. I mean, I think that might be longer than the average American marriage at this point. So, you know, it, it is very important to get to know each other on a personal level. And me personally, what I'm like, what I tend to look for in a founder is I want to find somebody who is very curious, very self-aware, incredibly resourceful. And then one of the biggest key factors that I think about with early stage founders is, do you move incredibly fast? Is mm. your sense of urgency at your core 
so deeply ingrained that I know when I give you money that you are going to be able to iterate and put as many shots on net as possible. Because at the end of the day, you know, the analogy is startups are essentially like founders are flying planes and they're fixing the engines while it's going down. And you need to be able to figure out how to find product market fit. And then on top of those things, you know, you are looking for people that can be great leaders, people that can raise a lot of capital, set a vision and recruit because they're not going to be the ones every single day figuring out, you know, how to change that one line in the call script. You know, it just it's not that anymore. It's right. like they need to set the strategy and make sure there's money in the bank and people on the field. And if they do those three things well, you know, they'll be okay. Tell me an experience where you had where you, the founder didn't cut it, that just fell flat in the in in the conversation. What what didn't work? Founders that do not know their metrics always will fall flat. Mm -hmm. Founders that do not know basic industry acronyms because they have not done their homework will always fall flat. Mm -hmm. Founders that have a good way of telling a story, which by the way, can trick many investors. But then when you get down to the tactical levels of like, oh, well, how do you execute on you know, that go to market strategy. How are you going to find the customers in the market? How are you going to reach those customers in the market? And what's an example of a product change that you might want to make? And what is your hypothesis around the metric that that will drive? When you start like double clicking into, you know, certain things, all of a sudden the wheels can fall off. That's interesting. You think that would be sort of stuff they would have their arms around pretty solidly, but I I mean, you know, look, at the end of the day, when the social network came out years ago and TechCrunch started to grow, like the becoming a startup founder became sexy. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, you know, the fact of the matter is there's a lot of VCs out there today and it is relatively easy to get a hold of us if you if you can network well enough. And so there are plenty of people that get in front of us who might be able to tell a story and might have even read about this thing and they think that this is a good idea because it's like Uber for X. And when they get in the room, it quickly just falls apart and you know whether or not they're the real deal. Mm, and, and, and what's the funnel look like? What's, what's the hit rate, would you say? The number of people you see and have those types of conversations versus the number that actually turn into an investment. So most venture firms will probably invest in, call it 5% or 3% of the companies that they see. Mm-hmm. You know, we see thousands of companies a year at primary and we invest in 12. Wow. So we're going closer to 1%. And the reason why, by the way, is like venture is not a great asset class, to be clear. It's incredibly hard. You know, if you're in the top quartile, the returns are fine, but like at the end of the day, your money is stuck in a venture fund for upwards of 10 years, maybe even more than that. You know, if you have a liquid investment, you might want to do that because on a risk adjusted basis, it makes sense. So if you want to be in the top 5% of venture funds, over 15% of your investments at seed need to become unicorns. And ideally, you know, with those businesses, they're well over 30x returns because those will make up for a number of the other zeros. Sure. So take me into the room where your partners, where you're discussing an investment. What's that conversation like? What's discussed? What is the level of consensus that's needed in order to make an investment? What's that look like? To boil it down to one thing, 
we have a list of gotta believes in our investment memo. And the gotta believes are the things that we need to believe internally for the business to become a multi-billion dollar outcome. And versions of those gotta believes include certain things regarding the founder and are they the right person to build this business? But other gotta believes have to do with the customers. You know, if I'm selling you guys legal software using generative AI, I need to believe that your firm understands the value of buying this software and that this software will generate, you know, X or Y ROI and that it's simple. And so when the founder comes in and they pitch, you know, my partners have read a very dense, typically maybe too long, especially a primary 15 to 20 page, you know, memo. And they've already commented and asked me a bunch of questions on, so they're up to speed. At that point, they want to grill the founder a little bit and they want to understand which one of the gotta believes do they have that is the least firm. And Mm. when the founder leaves the room, the debate ultimately is around the gotta believes. And more often than not, you know, we might be aligned, but there are plenty of times, by the way, where like we are not fully aligned. And that's where trust ultimately comes in. And I'm incredibly grateful. Like we have, I would argue, one of the tightest knit, best partnerships like in the country where we believe when we look around the table that each one of the partners can return the fund with one investment. Mm-hmm. And you need to have that level of trust. So for us, we're voting zero to three. Um, a three meaning we absolutely need to do the deal. A two meaning I am supportive of you doing the deal, but I'm not totally sure. A one being I'm out and a zero meaning like I'm like holding up the red flag. I've never seen a deal in my four and a half years at primary vetoed though when the lead partner wants to do the deal. Oh, interesting. So if the, if, if the lead partner is bought into the deal and is passionate enough about it and withstands the grilling, then generally that will be approved by the other partners. That's correct. I mean, from a legal perspective, our committee, like our investment committee, needs to have unanimous decision. So you ultimately need to make sure that, you know, the four GPs are aligned and willing to sign off on that. With that said, there are plenty of times where you're kind of on the fence, you know, as the the lead partner on a deal and you're getting a lot of pushback and you need to make a decision, right? Is it which times it? do you want to blow through the wall and say and pound the table and say, I'm doing this deal. Right. And when is that capital not necessarily worth it? Sure. Sure. Walk me through an instance where you made an investment and it didn't work out. Like what were the, were there early signs or were there, you know, learnings that you took away from that experience? So my first investment at primary, I lost $2 million faster than I ever want to admit. And then we actually had to wire uh, an additional like few hundred thousand dollars in order to wind the business down for some nuanced reasons that Mm. we don't need to necessarily get into. But there are times in every VC's life where they will fall in love with the idea and they'll fall in love with the market. And unfortunately, in this case, it was a business that was incredibly capital intensive. And if you were off by a few degrees, you could burn significantly more cash. Mm. And the business was ramping up and growing quickly in one city. And then they came to another city. 
and they started to spend more money in marketing. Well, what happens when you spend more money in marketing? You get more leads. Well, in this business, they needed people to pick up the phone on those leads and to close those leads. Well, the hiring strategy, the hiring plan did not keep up with the amount of lead growth. Mm. And all of a sudden, you know, when we got under the hood after a month of not chatting, you know, very, very closely with the founders because they they weren't the type of founders that were trying to leverage us as much as most of our portfolio. We caught back up with them and we realized that, you know, marketing spend went up, leads went up, but our conversion rate dropped by like 80%. We're like, what happened? And they're like, well, we had too many leads. And we're like, you know, salespeople, they handle those leads. And they're like, no, we didn't hire them all yet. And I'm like, oh man, like there's just some stuff where like it doesn't click, you know, and like sequentially or the cart doesn't come before the horse and vice versa. And this was one of those cases. And even though there are things that are fixable in some companies, there are other things that are incredibly challenging. I think at this point in my career, I know within 90 days whether or not a founder is going to be great. Really? Yeah. There are multiple chapters in a founder's life and career as like the founder of that business. But you know if they within have- Within 90 like, days of making the investment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So 90 days, you'll, you'll know. And what, what, what would cue you into that? Learning speed. Hmm. That's it. It's like, what do you mean learning speed? If you're a learning machine, Mm. you're going to do a few things. One, you're going to track down the experts in your space or around that problem that you have at the moment to Mm. figure out how to fix it. And so let's use that hiring example where like, I'm having trouble hiring great salespeople. Okay, well, let me go talk to the five best chief revenue officers in New York City or in San Francisco. I'm going to get them on the phone. I'm going to take all of the data inputs that they're giving me, all the advice, and then I'm going to come up with my own point of view. And time and time again, they'll do that with every single thing, and they'll be maniacal about it. And they will always be learning about their customers and how they need to improve their product. Mm -hmm. And if they're doing those two things, they'll be fine. But if they're not, then you tend to, they can get lucky by the way, like they can find product market fit and and product market fit is hard to screw up in the long run, but it will not be the type of founder that you're most likely to have long-term success with. That's interesting. So the world has changed. You and your eight years have enjoyed an only an up market. It's been a boom environment. Mm. Congratulations. Welcome to the real world now though. (laughs) The go-go times, they're Uh, over. And uh, we've spent a lot of time, by the way, on this podcast talking about how the economic environment has changed with the rising interest rates, you know, inflation and the whole host of issues that have have come through the macroeconomic environment. So I'm curious now from your perspective as an early stage investor, how it's affected your investing. At primary, we never sped up during the pandemic. I think that's incredibly important to mention because our model of being concentrated means the opportunity cost for every investment is incredibly high. And we have a big team that leans in to work with the founders and that doesn't work, it breaks if mm-hmm. you try to accelerate. The beauty of that is you have a lot of time diversification. And time diversification, as we're seeing, is incredibly important. <laughs> and what I would say is that right now, we're not changing our strategy incredibly so. The way that we've changed our strategy is by adjusting to the market because the market is efficient. And ultimately, when I say it's being efficient, 
multi-stage funds have come down to do seed investing now mm. because historically, for instance, in 2020, 2021, when we were doing seed investments, we were investing at a $15 million valuation. And then the Series A round was getting done at an 80 or $100 million valuation. And that markup, that four to five X markup round over round was amazing for us. Well, what happens when all of a sudden the market drops and you know tech stocks are 70 to 90% down, right. um, they need to go find returns elsewhere. And at Series A, the data on companies that are growing is a little bit more democratized where they know who they need to reach out to. And they've hired a lot of younger investors who don't want to sit on their hands. And so they're coming down and they're doing seed investments and they're keeping prices up. So seed investment valuations now, probably 20 to $25 million at times. You can get them 10 to 15. They mm -hmm. are a little bit better, but the market's far more competitive than it ever was. So what we're doing is we're spending a lot more time on incubating businesses now. And, you know, we went from one every three years to four last year and we'll do six this year. And that not only helps us, you know, from an entry price perspective, but we own more of the company. So when you say incubate a business versus a seed round, what is the, explain the difference. Totally. So basically an incubation, and there's many styles of incubation, mm -hmm. by the way, that different firms do. Our version of incubation is we have a partner and a principal working with an OIR, which stands for operator in residence. We come up with a thesis on a market and a product, and we go out and we have the OIR do a lot of the due diligence on that. And so I'll go back to the legal tech example. Mm -hmm. If we had a thesis about generative AI's impact on legal, we would end up having that OIR leverage all of our contacts to speak with folks at the law firms and try to find design development partners and potential customers and figure out what should the product look like. And once we have a fully you know, flushed out business plan, really pitch deck in this case, and investment memo, mm -hmm. we'll then go to the market and we will recruit co-founders to come in and to take the idea that is a bit more flushed out, but not fully baked, by the way, this is mm -hmm. an incredibly important distinction, and we'll give them a million dollars to go and launch that business, and we'll help them raise that seed round, either from outside investors, maybe we co-lead, maybe we let them do their thing, or if they need us to lead the round, we'll lead the round. Uh, and that's led to an immense amount of success at primary. Really? Uh, that, yeah, because you know at the end of the day, that seems like a lot harder road to hoe than you'd think so. Yes. It's certainly more time consuming. Yeah. But what I would tell you is VCs just see a lot of stuff and we see a lot of markets and we see a lot of trends and a lot mm -hmm. of themes and we have access. And for whatever reason, people are willing to return our phone calls yeah. and it enables it where we can see a theme in one market, apply it to another market and go out and find initial customers. And our belief is that some of the best founders in the world are incredible operators. But what are incredible operators doing? They're maniacally focused on what their task is at hand. Mm -hmm. And so they're not able to come up for air, come up with ideas, especially when they have, you know, two kids and, you know, one going off to college and they're figuring all these things. And so if we can streamline that for them and we can give them a great market, which mm -hmm. markets are so important, 
then, you know, the stars align and it's worked out very well. That's great. And that's that's a change than what you were doing two years ago, three years ago. How have your LPs reacted to that? How, what are those conversations like? Our LPs love it. Owning more of a company at a lower price point is is great. And our belief is if you look at the economics of it, to give you an idea, if you own 30% of a company instead of 15% of a company, uh, you can return the fund based on an exit that is half the size. Mm -hmm. And not every single company is going to be a decacorn. And so you're increasing your probability of success by doing that. And by the way, if we incubate 10 businesses and one of them is not a unicorn, like we are absolutely not doing our jobs, uh, at least doing them well. Uh, so that has been a strategy that they've Got been it. really big fans of. Got it. Other trends that you've seen change in the industry since the change in the economic environment? Any others? Well, I think generative AI has certainly exploded onto the scene. Yeah. So that's that's been one. Before you go on, I just stay on that for one second. How do you think that's going to change the industry? What impact is it going to have, both from your how you evaluate deals, how you operate, and also your investment opportunities? So what I'll tell you is, we are in inning one, the top of inning one mm. when it comes to generative AI. And we do fundamentally believe that it's a platform shift. However, all tech innovations have a hype cycle. And the reality is that there will be a crash when it comes to generative AI. We see 30 businesses that are getting started doing the exact same thing mm on the exact same day and the competitive nature of that is going to lead to a bloodbath you know so picking the winners in the market makes the bar even higher when it comes to the founders that you want to back right that has been changing because the conversations in the room because of how early we are when it comes to generative ai are probably the most intellectual and philosophical conversations that I've ever had in my venture career. Really? And now I totally understand why people got obsessed with crypto, except for the fact that generative AI has much, much better use cases on the real economy. Right, right. And you started to say other other changes in the industry. There's a lot of hard conversations going on in, in boardrooms right now. We talked about how tech stocks are down 70 to 90%, some 50%, but at the end of the day, even if the deal was perfectly priced in the last round, even if it was perfectly priced, the business needs to grow 2x in order to grow into its own, its old valuation. Mm -hmm. and that's hard. It's really hard. And so we now need to go out and figure out ways to get these businesses financed. And because, you know, most startups, I know you have a lot of private equity listeners, I mean, and they all know they're burning cash. Mm -hmm. And so you need to be much more thoughtful about what are you spending money on? What are you investing in as a founder? And you want to look for what we call tighter J curves. So if you're going to invest in something, you want the payback period of that investment to be much faster. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, then we probably need to put it on the back burner for now because the capital markets aren't going to reward us for what it was doing two, three years ago. There's a real tension between preserving liquidity and investing in growth. That's got to be such a difficult thing to manage as a founder today. Absolutely. If you go into the offices now, what the KPIs are being set at requires more from people and mm -hmm. more focus. 
and more productivity and efficiency. And when you think about it- And discipline. And discipline, exactly. Yeah. And so when you're laying off you know, 30% of the team in order to preserve runway and optionality, but you're not changing the metrics that they need to hit, constraints create incredible opportunity mm. for companies. And I have seen time and time again, founders and all of the hardworking operators in our portfolio rising to the occasion. On the, on the other hand, in a early stage tech company in today's environment, there's great opportunity to hire people that you didn't have before because there have been such layoffs in the larger tech companies. So the, the resources for uh, people is much broader than what it was before. Absolutely. Now, I don't think like everyone coming out of, you know, Google and Facebook are, are going to be a good fit for an early stage startup. Uh, yeah. It's a very different lifestyle and a very different skill set in many ways. However, there is a ton of talent and the market for engineers has gotten significantly easier. Yeah. And what do you see as the fundraising cycle over the next 6, 12, 18 months? What do you, what do you see as the opportunities to raise capital? Do you think it'll make, become easier, harder? How should a founder be thinking about it? So we've told all of our founders to go out and raise capital now. We actually started that last quarter. Hmm. Uh, and the reason being is there's going to be an absolute tidal wave of companies going to raise capital in Q3 and Q4 of this year. And the market, whether it's going to be in a better position or not, the reality is there's a lot more supply of companies and not that much more supply of capital. And you have investors, both young and old, by the way, who are dealing with portfolio companies that are struggling. And so on one hand, you're spending a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of emotional you know, capacity on managing you know, the process that might be recapping or saving a company. And on the other hand, you have a generation of younger investors that have grown up momentum investing. And so right. they only want to see the cream of the crop, the stuff that's growing incredibly fast. And then that like next tier down, it might actually be where the best opportunity is because the assets might be the most mispriced. Uh, but a lot of investors just aren't thinking that way. They're not wired that way. And so it's going to be really hard to get the attention from Series A, B, C investors so I would recommend that they go out to market as soon as they really, can. Really, I would have thought it would just the opposite, which would be to, assuming you have the, ca the, the cash for another year, to wait uh, to see how the market plays out. But you're saying exactly the opposite. Do it now. If you have a year of cash, yeah, you should cut your burn and make that into a year and four months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Preserve, and then you should go preserve, to market. Preserve, yeah, yeah, I agree. Switching gears for one minute, the way you and I first got together was over the weekend when Silicon Valley Bank failed. Because I was really curious as to what was going on in the room during that weekend and what led up to that weekend for VC investors like yourself and the founders. It would be great if you could walk us through the whole sequence of events and how it impacted you and, and your your companies, how you found out about it, what the initial reaction was, conversations to the LPs, founders. Walk us through the, that, that tense time. I think it was such a, uh, a tense couple of days, whole weekend, four day stint that I, that I ended up ghosting you on text by accident. So I apologize. <laughs> 
Um, so let's start out with that day. I started to see chatter on Twitter in the morning. And I was like, this is a little odd. Like, I wonder what's going on. And, and this is that Friday. If I, was it was a Thursday. Thursday. It was a Thursday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the morning. And like, you know, there was definitely, you know, you, you know, if you were on calls that day, you were starting to hear about certain things. With that said, like Silicon Valley Bank had been an incredible partner to us. And like the people that are there are, are wonderful people. And so that morning we had a partner meeting and we had a conversation, you know, that got brought up in it. And at the time, by the way, like most people like, you know, partners that have been around a really long time were like, what are, the, what, are the, what are the chances that this actually happens? And we really wanted to give Silicon Valley Bank an opportunity to speak. And I think, unfortunately, the reality was, as many people saw it unfold, you know, Greg Becker, the, the, the former CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, went on, you know, and, and could only say what he could say. Mm -hmm. They were in a bit of a quiet period, is my understanding, when it all went down. And so what he ended up saying did not alleviate any of the tension. Um, it made it incredibly challenging for us. And, you know, unfortunately, I don't think like any of us on the venture side are in the business of, uh, you know, making sure that I guess or, or we're not in the business of taking risk when it comes to our companies having cash in the bank and losing it to a bank. And right. so we sent like over 2000 messages out on our own Slack that day talking about this, debating it intensely. And then each one of the partners got on the phone and they were chatting with their portfolio companies, but it was hard. It mm. was really hard because you gotta think about it this way. We had portfolio company founders that didn't have bank accounts set up anywhere else. Mm. So they needed to figure out how to open up a second bank account if they wanted to get their money out. And by the way, you saw the numbers unfold, like something like $44 billion withdrawals, you know, in, in 24 hours. And so, you know, people were scrambling. We wanted to really, you know, calm founders down and just and, and be someone that they could come to. And so we started hosting some webinars. We started, you know, uh, having them on and, and doing this was it. Friday. This was should, Friday. Yeah. Think we started, about the sequencing. Yeah, Thursday, you're starting Thursday to find we out. started to find out. People, Friday, you're hosting. Late, late afternoon, you know, is when I think a lot of the wires started to go out, you know, and where, where people were pushing to get their money Thursday out. Thursday afternoon, right? Friday, you know, we did a webinar with all of our founders. We actually wrote a letter to RLPs on Friday. And, and at the end of the day, when there are situations like this, by the way, that occur, over communicating with all stakeholders was by far the number one lesson that I learned. Mm -hmm. And we had LPs that we, we ended up hosting a webinar, by the way, for our LPs about this thing, yeah. you know, and that was on Monday. We ended up talking to them even more. But the weekend was like a little bit nerve wracking. You know, I ended up working with our, our new CFO, Mike, who who's incredible. And we we had a spreadsheet spun up that started initially on Thursday. And that spreadsheet initially was who has their money at SVB? How much money do you have? What is your payroll coming up? How many payroll cycles can you meet? And first, we were planning on doing a capital call from our LPs. And that way we could figure out, all right, if we need to prioritize a certain amount of companies, how many are we going to have to prioritize? How much money do they need? Right. I think I got on the phone with uh, a number of bankruptcy attorneys that are very familiar with the banking space. And I asked them, hey, what are the chances that we get our money back over what timeline? And we started to learn about this, which like we never had to before. But then over the weekend was when 
we actually started surveying every company about where their money was. And we started calculating counterparty risk in mm. case there was a broader bank run right. that we needed to figure out for our LPs that we weren't necessarily just early stage venture capitalists anymore, but like we were real asset managers and figuring out, you know, at the portfolio level what was happening. And so we'll roll off the weekend, Monday comes around, Tuesday comes around, things start to settle down a little bit and how did how did how did it play out from there? I got on a plane Sunday night uh, when I really didn't want to to come back to New York because I was worried about what was going to happen on Monday when the markets opened. And I landed at LaGuardia and I got off the plane and I got a push notification from Twitter and, you know, Aunt Janet saved the day. And it was uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. Thank you. Like yeah. it was it was a huge relief. And I think what people don't realize and really gets lost in the noise, by the way, is it wasn't just the fact that a bunch of venture backed startups had money at Silicon Valley Bank. I want to highlight like a few things. One, we could have lost a whole generation of or decade worth of innovation in startups. Imagine what that would have done to the global economy right. and our place as the United States in that in the innovation economy it would have crushed us Two. I know for a fact that schools had money with Silicon Valley Bank and that would have left teachers unpaid, you know, payroll would not have been met. Mm -hmm. It would have created issues at more things than just venture backed startups. That includes there are companies that have money at Silicon Valley Bank, they're trying to cure cancer. Like we, there was real stuff that should yeah. have been saved. And I'm glad that the government at the end of the day stepped in. Have you changed your banking practices with or encouraged your your portfolio companies to change their banking practices absolutely like <laughs> i think we all they say they say it only takes once to learn right, right um right. yeah i mean we, we have backup bank accounts now for for every one of our portfolio companies right. and you know I, I i can tell you maybe more about sweeps than i knew a few weeks ago so we're definitely thinking about uh, treasury management as, as a core function now that's great well, hopefully that will be the last time you have to experience that. Just a few more questions. One, you've been incredibly successful at a young age at building your reputation within the VC community, having been recognized by Forbes as you know, on their 30 under 30 list. You were recognized by Venture Capital in their 40 to keep an eye on, rising star. I think it would be interesting to hear how you've done that, how you've built your reputation in a highly competitive industry. First off, when I tried getting a job in VC, people told me the only ways to get in were, you know, you went to an Ivy League school or you worked at a venture-backed startup or you started a company and exited it. And none of that were the boxes that I checked. But I could only control what I could control. And ultimately, growing up in a family that was not afraid to roll up their sleeves and work their tail off, work ethic was incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And I would say combining that with this pay it forward approach that has been ingrained in me since I was a kid has been incredibly important where in every interaction that I've had over the years, I've tried to bring my fullest self and be incredibly present and figure out how can I add value to somebody else to make their life easier and their life better. And oftentimes, 
you know, you're not doing that in a way where it only makes sense for one of the two people in that equation where like, I want to make your life better, Peter, but I don't want to make Ronnie's life who I'm introducing you to or Lisa's life. No, like I actually think all three of you would get along really, really well. And so I think that, you know, paying it forward and being giving of your time has been incredibly important and is something that can get lost in mm -hmm. this world of VC where the power dynamics are a little off and where people get glorified and, you know, don't necessarily behave in the best ways. And so I've just done it the way that I would say, like, people like my dad, you know, taught me and my uncle taught me where like when my dad went into the factory in the morning when I was a kid, I remember walking the floor with him and he shook everyone's hand and he asked them about their kids. Like, that is the approach that I've kind of gone about with venture capital. And, you know, I've hung around long enough to get lucky and things have kind of worked out in my favor. And what would you say is your most unusual, successful business habit? I'm just relentless. I do not stop and will like prioritize things in ways that I think some people are like, you know, they, they find it to be nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and so what do you do when you're offline? So I do a lot of different things. I mean, love cooking, uh, love meditating, love to travel. And then I'm involved in a number of nonprofits, including, you know, the Jeffrey Modell Foundation. Um, you know, I, I grew up with something called primary immune deficiency, and I was pretty sick when I was a, a little kid. And I felt lucky because my parents, like, pushed me to live a normal life. And, you know, as a way to give back and to try to inspire other kids who have grown up with primary immune deficiency, I've gotten pretty deeply involved in JMF. Well, it sounds like you have a full, full life and agenda. And I appreciate you coming on and spending time with us in Private Market Talks. Thank you. Appreciate you having me.